This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. The mystery of Shasta Faye Hepworth bookends inherent vice. Despite a few brief memories and cameos, she primarily anchors either end of the story, suffusing the long stretch of two hours and 30 minutes in between with the dusting of her star stuff. As if she is this universe's big bang and big crunch, the story cannot begin nor end without her. But even further, the story is her, a strange super cosmos of Shasta Faye. Sprinkled throughout this long tale is the history of Doc and Shasta, the two once-young lovers who, in the words of their narrator, each gradually located a different karmic thermal. And at the exact moment of the film's halfway point, Shasta reappears as a postcarded memory in the film's and Paul Thomas Anderson's most heartrending moment, soaked in sweet melancholy like only PTA can orchestrate it. A memory that sends Doc hurtling towards the dark heart of Golden Fang. But how? Was the postcard a secret message from Shasta, coded in love talk to help him locate the Fang? Was it simply a note of lovesick regret, and his flash to return to the scene simply a moment of coincidental luck? Is the appearance of the Fang's headquarters here, where Doc and Shasta once kissed, some brutal metaphor for time sweeping away their love? Or was the postcard simply a hallucination sent forth from some blood-kinked, cell-deprived fold of Doc's overtaxed cerebellum? What's real, and what is simple hope? What is a true memory, and what is the fictional story we tell ourselves to survive it? That's the question our host wrestles with today, while talking to someone who's no stranger to tales of mystery and love and time and space. Concerning the making of a mystery film, today's guest once had this to say. Every single person who does any kind of mystery, it was like this with Brick, it was like this with Knives Out. You're on set living in a constant state of fear every time an actor comes up to you with a question because you're 95% sure they're about to ask something where you're going to blank and realize your entire story doesn't make sense. The complexity of who's where and when. There may be folks out there who would like to sit down with graph paper and work it all out, and that's part of the pleasure. But the reality is, most people are going to experience it as a narrative. The main way the story has to make sense is in an intuitive way, where you get the journey of the main person. Then you try to work out the other stuff, and hopefully it all lines up and makes sense. And joining me today, at the exact halfway point of Inherent Vice, with several sheets of graph paper to track the journey through the past of Doc Sportello, is a very special guest. The writer and director behind Brick, The Brothers Bloom, Looper, Star Wars The Last Jedi, Knives Out, and three, count them, one, two, three, of the all-time greatest Breaking Bad episodes ever, the absolutely annoyingly gifted 
<laughs> Ryan Johnson. Are we at the halfway point? That's <laughs> we're at the, half, we're at the halfway point of the movie. Apex of Gravity's Rainbow right you're, here. You're we're the at the, the yeah, the engine's cutting off. You, and can't, you, you can't reference Gravity's Rainbow. Nobody's read that. Oh, come on. Oh, see what I did? <laughs> see what I did? Nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I, rev- I went and saw your movie. I know you I did. I paid good money for that. Did you read Gravity's Rainbow, though? I did read Gravity's Rainbow. Yeah. I have read it. Yeah, I read it in college, like, yeah, as one does. In college? Yeah. It was after college for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, who's, well, look at me. All right, sure. Sorry. Making fun of me on my own <laughs> show. Uh, gotta say, as I was, I was telling you earlier, as weird as it must be for you to be invited to a show that has absolutely nothing to do with any of oh, your films. Oh, so nice. This feels weird. Oh, it's so good. Because I really want to, like, like, my instinct is to just pick your brain about all of your films rather than, <laughs> no. rather than inherent vice. Nope. So I brought along this notebook. I will walk out that door. <laughs> I will drop you. <laughs> you don't want to talk about Knives Out? Oh, God. <laughs> You're tired of Knives Out? No. Okay, no, screw no, it. No, I am no, going to no. ask one question. I'm gonna, this is my all show, right. and I'm going to be really selfish, and all I just right. have to know no, hit me uh, what level of influence Cowboy Bebop has had on your work, because I always think of that scene in Brick where Brendan takes the straw and he yeah. ties it and he puts it back in yeah. as the most Spike Spiegelish Very thing I've ever seen. Spike-esque. Yeah, right? That's the real folk blues right there. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> we're like five episodes or five minutes into this episode and I'm going to start crying oh. with the reference to the real folk blues. Uh, I, was, I was so into that show, especially around the time when I was writing Brick. So you can feel kind of that rock and roll cowboy kind of like it mostly in like the attitude of Brendan and also Joe always reminded me of of Spike Joe always he's got the especially when we were doing brick he had that kind of like lanky sort of he's got the walk and the shape got the walk the way he hunches over a little bit and just kind of like the attitude of it and so um and uh you know in the beginning of Looper also when he's like partying in the city there's like some element of Spike to that too so no that's that's I mean but just it's really it's just tied to coolness in my head you know it is cool it's the coolest and I won't lie speaking of Looper when he's laying in bed does he does the little gun click bang see a space cowboy all right well we're we're gonna do the cowboy bebop episode after this all right incremental incremental bebop <laughs> yes, I, I'm so, calling the uh, Pierre Lefou. What is it? The Pierre Lefou. Pierre Lefou. Yeah, I'm it's calling that episode. Scariest episode, isn't yeah, that your terrifying, episode? Terrifying. I tell you, I call it right now. I call dibs. I am a real folk blues man. All right, all right. You can have that episode. Okay, Fine. All right. Okay. Sheer selfishness of my digression aside, my cowboy bebop brick digression aside, it's not the worst place for us to start. Mm. Uh, cowboy bebop is essentially a kaleidoscope of mostly American genre filmmaking Mm. and a tribute to that. And I wanted to actually begin this episode by talking to you about that very broad topic of genre. Mm. Uh, I don't... Now, despite the fact that you've made a Hammett-inspired noir, a con man caper picture, Mm. a time travel film, a space opera, and a murder mystery whodunit, Uh I don't really think of you as a genre filmmaker, despite the fact that I feel like all of your films are very genre heavy, more, and this might be splitting hairs, but it seems to me that for you, genre acts like an organizing principle Mm. for your ideas and your characters uh, by utilizing the rules and requisites of a particular genre and then going to their own place, which is why I thought you'd be great for talking about Inherent Vice, oh, which does the same thing. Yeah, it gives you kind of, genre gives you like a box to play in, I guess. Now, when a, you say interesting, are you doing that 
director writer thing where someone tells you something that's way off the mark about how you view your own work and you're like, yeah, that's cool. Oh, that's I'm interesting. I'm glad you think of that's cool <laughs> that you see it that you way. You know all the tricks, sure, don't you? Sure. You know every single trick in the book. <laughs> uh, no, it is actually, it's, it's, it's interesting because, uh, I mean, and the way it, it, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I, cause I, I've, um, you know, cause we just put out Knives Out and I just did like a long tour of Q and A's and stuff. And so I, and it's funny, like over the course of, and I don't want to, uh, <laughs> I don't want to cheapen anyone's experience who's enjoyed the Q and A I've done, but over the course of doing them, you do tend to cultivate a set of answers because mm-hmm. there's only so many questions you can be asked about sure. any thing. So my typical answer to like when someone asks about genre is just, yeah, it gives you a defined box to play in. I like it because of that. But then because of that, because it creates a subliminal conversation between you and the audience, it allows you to kind of take chances and to reach further and to go places and to bake in some thematic things that um, if they were just kind of naked on their own might not stand the light of day, I guess. Um, and But what I was responding to when I was saying interesting is thinking about um, thinking about this genre of the private detective genre and thinking of it in relation both to Pynchon and to PTA and in a weird way I mean because Cowboy Bebop you brought up it's it's Cowboy Bebop it's it's it is absolutely this sort of pastiche of American genres but yeah. it's all filtered through the sensibility a foreign sensibility through the sensibility of a, a very Japanese sensibility um similar to like Sergio Leone you know exactly with the westerns exactly. yeah. and sometimes that's the most fascinating thing is to have a foreign perspective on something that is very American, you know, very distinctly American. It can open up sort of, um, I don't know. And, and in some ways, I feel like that's what the, f- in very different ways, the book of Inherent Vice and the film, they're both kind of takes on this very specific genre by guys who are completely foreign to that. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. I don't know. It's it's like an alien interpreting. <laughs> well, I mean, you read Inherent Vice, the book, especially, and it is. It's like a bunch of aliens yeah. watched all the dif- all the different iterations of a Marlowe movie. Yeah, we're like, well, I guess that's how they talk <laughs> on Earth. Like, <laughs> so there's got to be a gal in the doorway, and yeah. she's got to come with a problem. But it's even. I mean, what's it? In a way, the the movie is almost more fascinating to me in that regard because the the book. I mean, Pynchon, um, you know, he he doesn't he he still he rolls with the PI conventions even a little bit more than the movie yeah. does. What I find so fascinating about the movie is, you know, the the Marlowe or the Sam Spade, you know, the Hammett or the Chandler, you know, that kind of tradition of the private detective thing. It's so based on words and information and exposition, mm-hmm. and I don't know, I can't think of a movie that depends on that, that detests exposition <laughs> more than Inherent Vice does. It absolutely hates information. And the, you can see in the, the, char- the actors, the characters, the movie itself, it tosses words away. It almost feels like you can feel almost a sense of disgust it has that it has to impart information to the audience through <laughs> words in a way because it's so rooted in poetry. And it's, mm-hmm. it's not saying it to its detriment. I think that actually makes it – that's part of what I think, um, I don't know, makes makes 
PTA's movies, he's my favorite filmmaker working today. And I think that's part of what makes his movies so special is the vision is that they're so rooted in, um, I don't know, poetry that kind of transcends words, I think, you know? Yeah. And I think you're so right. And I do, I agree yeah. uh, that, that the, the book is so much more rooted, I think, in the, the mythos and the archetypes, but yeah. it's, it's, Pynchon also having fun with those. Like, I think yeah. he's, I mean, he's being, he's being Pynchon. It, he's plays, like, it plays ball though. Yeah. You know? it no, plays I mean, ball, it, yeah. But it, what it's interesting to me is how clearly, you know, I went into the film the first time I saw it. I'd, I'd read the book. So I kind of had a grasp of the plot. Yeah. However wacky. Like, yeah. I, I, I more or less knew A, B, C, and D. Yeah. What I found so interesting about the film and why I love the film, I enjoy the book. Mm-hmm. Love the film. Well, yeah. I, it's funny that I'm telling you that I love the film as we're sitting here having a podcast. Yeah, you fucking so. better. It'd be weird if you didn't. <laughs> I think it's weird how much I do. Uh, yeah. uh, but, uh, you know, what I love about the film is, as you said, like so much of the d- detective stuff. Yeah. The movie's like, no. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's, that's to get us here. That's there's, to get us in the room talking. There's a scene where, you know, where Doc is like, we're in the movie where, where Joaquin as Doc is like at the cafe reading a paper and I forget yep. what it is a summary of like it's it's the background of Mickey Wolfman and at some point he literally he's reading vital information to <sighs> the plot and, and just, at some point you can see he literally tosses away and just goes I don't want to say this shit and that that I think to me sums up yeah what you're talking about when I every I'm I'm so glad you mentioned that because every time I watch that scene I wonder if that is one of those moments where that wasn't scripted, and Joaquin was just like, "No, oh, no." Yeah, and, and, and PTA saw it like, shit. "Keep it, cut it, print." That's the that's that's the take. Because who, who gives yeah, a shit? Absolutely. But what what two things I love about this movie is if you do want to be like Doc, and I'm obvious, I think I'm kind of doing this a little. If you want to sit at the whiteboard yeah. and write out all the connections and Shasta the Coy and mm-hmm. Pug Beaverton, it all does hang together. Mm-hmm. The movie makes total sense if right. you do want to. But what I what I enjoy, what I enjoyed about the book was that it used the framework of the detective genre Mm -hmm. to investigate essentially the murder scene of an entire generation. Mm -hmm. And that was Pynchon's focus. A man writing in 2009, looking Mm -hmm. back at what happened Mm -hmm. angrily and lamenting it Mm -hmm. and using the metaphor of a breakup and the the one you're not going to be able to get back no matter how hard you try. And maybe don't know quite as well as you thought you did. Yeah. What I love, though, about the film, and I've said this so many times on the show, is how PTA inverts that Mm. and how he takes the the metaphor, the subtext, and Mm. makes that text. To me, Mm. when I watch this movie, it's not about lamenting the 1960s and lamenting the dream. It's just as... PTA said, it's just about how much you can miss someone. Yeah. Like how badly you, how how much you just can't let them go to your own detriment. Well, and it's funny how, I mean, specifically the scene, not to jump the gun, but the scene we're going to talk about, the difference between how it is on the page versus how he approaches it in the movie is maybe the crystallized version of exactly what you just said, you well, know, and it exemplifies it. Before we hit the scene, let's talk about that because yeah. it is, it's kind of chilly. Mm. In the book, right? Like yeah, it's it freezing, little... and and it it's uh, you're talking about that scene specifically. This, yeah, this scene specifically. So this it's, the scene it's in cold. the scene in the book, it's cold and it's nearly apocalyptic. You know, he goes yeah. into it, it goes. I mean, it starts. He acknowledges kind of the romance of like the situation of yeah. it, but then he goes into the. You know, he talks. He describes the storm and this like raging storm that's a, that's 
coming over LA in these almost apocalyptic terms. And he talks about looking at this hole in the ground that <laughs> is going to become the Golden Fang yeah. building. And uh, it's like staring into like the depths of hell. It's like this looming sense of doom is what eventually takes over and dominates. It's malignant. The scene, very much so, yeah. Yeah, and I I, I went back and I was re- I mean, I've read the book far too many times just as I've seen the film far too many times. And I reread that scene last night and perhaps because I was focusing on the scene in specific, Mm. it struck me how terrifying and creepy it is. Like you said, there's this like tar black, cataract that just yeah. falls over LA out of nowhere. Yeah. There's nothing summer rain sweetness about it the way nope. there is in the film. Like the, yeah. you see that in the movie, you want to like take your shirt off and run in the streets. It yeah. looks, it's that perfect kind of LA rain, yeah. not the, the brutal cold LA rain we're having this weekend. Sure. But that great <laughs> brutal. <laughs> How well, long brutal have you for lived us. here? <laughs> it rained from 5 a.m. to 5 oh, p.m. It straight. Dipped into the low 60s. <laughs> That's how you know I have lived here for a long time because that was that was brutal for I know. me. I'm I was saying, like, you've been here too long. I thought but. I was living in an evening yesterday. But you in the you know in the film it's that that kind of great LA summer rain where it doesn't even get yeah. the sun doesn't even go away completely. Yeah. But in in the book it's it's like I said it's tar black and Doc and Shasta don't even get out of the car. They just yeah. kind of sit there and they make out. Yeah. Uh, and there's this strange tense change yeah. at the very end of the scene where he's like, you know, they're making out despite the fact that, you know, Shasta was halfway out the door mm-hmm. and they both knew how this ended. Right. It's, it's like his memory is almost intruding on the scene well, and, and, and putting that on them. The bigger picture of the storm looming over 1960s late 1960s LA and what you're talking about of of the the bigger thing of the darkness that's coming in terms of you know um this generation kind of being eaten up and kind of destroyed you know that that is what dominates the scene as a and to see uh you know the movie to see you know Paul take that and uh, and it, it gets to the heart, that difference in terms of how he treats a scene gets to the heart of it. You can see exactly where the movie's heart is, you know? You yeah, can see where the movie the puts its chips down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and, and again, I think it goes back to that thing where the book is so much a lamenting of that place and yeah. that time. And as PTA said, no, this is about love. Yeah. This is, this for, or for him, this yeah. is it's a love story. And, yeah. uh, and I think that, the, I don't think that there is another scene in the film, as you've said, that so underlines the difference that these yeah. two men approach to telling this story and what yeah. interests them. Very much. I, I just, I don't think the end of the decade, yeah. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is a great film, which yeah. I love, but yeah. I don't think that's what Paul's interested in here. He's, it's not about lamenting this time. It's just these yeah. two people that can't make it work. Well, I would, I mean, I'd go so far as to say the book, and to, you've read the book a lot more than I have. Tell me if you disagree that the book actually, the main focus of it is not on the Shasta-Doc relationship. It's much no. more of a kaleidoscope. It's much, it's one, that is much more just one element That's, that's of, just what gets Doc into the mess. Yeah, and it's much more about like, it, it, it almost has, if not equal focus, but closer to equal focus to, you know, all these other elements that are spinning there's around the, him. The Coy Harlingen case. Exactly, and, yeah, yeah. And Wolfman, and there's a, so, yeah. so many more digressions about the yeah. LA land use, which is the best part of any LA nor. You got to yeah, throw in yeah, the, the, the yeah. land use and abuse if you're going to do an LA exactly, nor. You have to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if, if, if brick had been set in Los Angeles, yeah, you sure. know that would have been there. Ken <laughs> would have been, been like making these shady real estate <laughs> deals instead of dealing heroin. Spoilers, I guess, for yeah. someone's best brick. Uh, yeah, and, and it's just, 
on top of you, you say that this film, or excuse me, this scene is shows how much you know heart yeah. there can be had here. To me, this scene is the heart yeah. of the movie. Yeah, very you much. You know, so. when you go in and you see a PTA movie the first time. Yeah, I don't know about you, but every single time I've walked out of the theater, yeah. there's the one scene. Yeah, that's buzzing yeah. in my head like a chorus yeah. that it can't. Yeah. First time I walked out of there will be blood. It's the oil rig. Yeah, uh, boogie nights. Well, I didn't see that in the theater. I was I was a kid. But. Oh my God, you're a child. Ah, <laughs> look at this white and I this saw, beard, right? Look, look at this. all this gray. I got. Um, I am, I am but, the Wolfman. <laughs> the, uh, you know the um, the Night Ranger sequence yeah. uh, in Boogie Nights. Sure. Throw a dart, you'll find one. You know, with Inherent Vice, though, it's much more relaxed, more minor key film. There still is that one set piece when you walk out, and if mm-hmm. unless you your your mind is still ringing with. Josh Brolin eating pancakes or pot. Yeah. It's this scene. This mm. is the capital M marquee sequence that I yeah. think says this is everything the film is about. This yeah. is everything it is. And it's not just because it has that atomic core of yeah. you know, bruised romance at the center. There's so much, so much else happening here, whether it's the intru- intrusion of Sordelige mm-hmm. into this memory. Is, mm-hmm. is she real? Is she not? Right. Uh, you have the beginnings. Of the fang. Yeah. And the realization that the the bad thing that we're dealing with now was actually the firmaments and the foundation yeah, the were already being put were in being place laid, long, yeah. when long everything, before when everything we thought looked it was great. Gonna, yeah, yeah when, back when everything was great. Yeah. And that inability to even look back and remember without things being tainted. Yeah. To be able to look back and go, oh, no, she was already, she already halfway out the door, right, wasn't right, she? Right, 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 Yeah, Boy, yeah. I'm kind of use a hug right now. I'm getting kind oh, of Oh, shit. I'd hug you about coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Speaking of really scary rainstorms foretu- foretelling doom. Hug physician, hug thyself. <laughs> this is podcaster, squeeze thyself. <laughs> we, we are recording this on a very strange weekend in March uh, where it's raining a lot in L.A., yeah, and hopefully it's not spelling some sort of uh, some, some sort of doom for us. I can't imagine it is. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, we are really neroing our uh, yeah, violins right let's, into. Let's fiddle. Let's fiddle away. <laughs> our fiddles. Excuse- let's fiddle away. Oh, yeah. I just got to correct me on yeah. my own show. Did you catch that? Uh, yeah, man. No, it's 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 weird. Have you so when you walked out of the movie for the first time, did you did you love it? Yes. Yeah. It got you immediately. Uh, I, in addition to being just kind of generally insane, yeah. obviously, because here, look at what we're doing right now. Yeah, look, what yeah. I've, look how I've taken your Saturday. <laughs> I've, uh, I am a sucker for for the detective movie. Yeah. Specifically that sub, 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 sub genre of the loser detector who, detector, the loser detective who just has got to do one good thing. Yeah. One thing. Yeah. And the more minor the thing, almost the more special it is. Mm. Because what I love about, I love Hammett. Yeah. I love Hammett. Yeah. And I love Red Harvest. And I love the detective that goes in. He's like, no, I'm going to walk in mm-hmm. cowboy style. Yeah. I'm going to fuck everything up. Yeah. And I'm going to walk out with right. my my rules and my idea of justice having been applied. Right. And I'm, and I'm out. I'm going right. to bust it all up and I'm going to move to the next place. Yeah. I'm an even bigger sucker, though, for for that detective who's like, I'm only going to be able to do this one minor thing. Right. That's it. But right. that's there's some something almost more redemptive about the detective or the hero who's like, I'm going to lay everything on the line for this such a minor thing in the scheme of things. Like, mm. I'm not going to stop the thing. Mm-hmm. Nixon's going to be president. 
uh, America's going to go the way America's going to go. Yeah. But I'm going to make sure that this little girl and her dad right. are back together. Right. I right, can right, do right. that. Right. And the fact that he's willing, he's not risking his life to save the country. Right. It's not really, to, or to uh, save a town or right, anything. Right, right, he, right, It's right. just so this one little girl gets to wait a little bit longer right. before she gets hit with the little kid blues. So, right, 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 right. I loved the book, but none of that emotion mm. was in it. So when I walked out as a PTA fan, yeah. I had the most beautific, <laughs> goofball, <laughs> Nicholson's Joker virus smile yeah, yeah. Uh, from Batman on my face walking out of the theater. Yeah. I, I was smiling that after the first eight minutes because, yeah. I mean, I've said it before. When you have a cool-ass neon font yeah. as your title card, you got Can, you got Can, yeah. you got Joaquin Phoenix, probably his generation's most intense performer yeah. doing detective shit. Like, yeah. I'm done. I'm good. Like, he could have cut the movie right there. Could have been a short movie, and watch, I would have. I would have been. I'm still doing a podcast. Watch your toes. <laughs> yeah. No one mentions that. Watch your toes breaks my heart every time. Watch your toes. And then it's really quiet. Yeah. But of course, I've noticed right after that, she to herself she whispers, "I'm going." Really? Yeah. Like, like she's forcing her. Like, she wants oh. to stay. Oh. When you watch a movie 180 times, right, you begin to notice certain little subtleties. And one of the, my favorites is when Shasta Faye is driving away in her car. She's like, watch your toes. Very sweet. Yeah. And then she takes a breath like she's stealing herself. And she says, mm. I'm going. And just drives off into the night. Wow. Wow. Right? The, I was like, I was sold. I was wow. sold. So, yes, I, that is my very long way of saying, yes, Ryan. Yes, I enjoyed the film when I walked out. <laughs> Did you did you love it? Because I it, yeah. I know that it, it's not a film that everyone loves the first time through. Uh, no, the first time, and I like I said, you know, I said how I feel about his movies, you know, and uh, I mean, and the thing that you're describing, I had when I walked out of, you know, there will be blood and the master, and and definitely Phantom Thread, and like I mean, I, I I have that when I walk out of his films. This one was different. I had to find my way into loving this movie, and I did. It's a great way of putting it. Yeah, and I it's it's, it's the other reason I was excited to talk about this scene because Neil Young had a lot to do with how I found my way into into loving this movie. Um, but I feel like, yeah, I don't know. I feel like the when I first saw it, there was a there was a push and pull for me between between the play. And maybe it's just because I was so like hung up on like this idea of what a Hammett thing is, but between mm-hmm. like the plot and the poetry. And I, when I first saw it, I felt like those two things were at odds with each other in me when I was watching yeah. the movie. And I'll be honest, like even today, like my – this might sound horrifying, but like my perfect way of watching it is to watch chunks of it at a time, as opposed to sit, as opposed to sitting and absorbing the entire. There thing There are people who are watching it that way now, along with the show, just doing a scene at a time. Yeah, and and it's, I, I mean, honestly, it's like so because so, essentially, what started pulling me in was I started getting into like, you know, early seventies, Neil Young. Like I started getting which is a little anachronistic. What year is the movie take? I was just, uh, the year is nineteen seventy. Seventy. All of okay. the Neil Young cuts are totally uh out of time. Yeah. Like, totally they're all like yeah. two or three years early yeah. in this film. Yeah. Um so uh so I I started I started getting into that era of Neil Young um, and it was around when I was like making Last Jedi. I just started listening to it all the time. And because I was in London making it, I had that kind of nostalgia you get for LA that you only get when you're away from, you know, that you get when you're away from LA. And 
the movie, I found myself coming back to the movie because it, it, it for me, I realized and it all clicked at once, just like the way that, you know, Joaquin dresses, just like Neil Young in the movie and all that stuff. It This is what the movie does in such a powerful way for me is creates an LA of the mind that probably that you know that never existed never but really for there. those of us who were a little too young to experience that kind of you know um that 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 kind of late 60s early 70s kind of disintegration of the you know um you know of the of the canyon scene sort of you know uh of the canyon music scene the way that those of us listen to our parents listening to those tunes <laughs> and a match yep. conjured up a vision of what life was like in LA at that at that moment and there's something about the film that in the same way that you know it, with a the deep romance that like the master or there will be blood or phantom thread does this film conjures that and the poetry of that is what Suddenly, it was like a the gravitational force of a black hole just pulled me right into it. You know, you know, it's strangely, it's and I, I, I still wrestle with what is it about the movie that makes it this way. But mm. you remember when you would go to like a bookstore in the mall in the '90s, and there would be those posters that you have to like cross your eyes, and if you cross yeah. your eyes just Magic right, eye. yeah, yeah, you'd see the sailboat, yeah, but. Until you saw the sailboat, you could never see the sailboat. Oh, right. But once you saw it, it was, it's always a sailboat. It's all yeah. you yell at your friends. I don't know what you're not seeing. It's right yeah. here. Yeah. You can't not see it. That's what this film seems to be about. Seems to be like for people mm. like you, for whom it is more of a grower. Yeah, is that you spend the longest time going? I don't see it. Mm. It's just shapes. It's right. just right. pink and blue and purple blobs and shapes. Right. And then there's that day, and I think as you said, for you, it's like the Neil Young part of it in that, that mm-hmm. God, I'm missing California. And you start kind of looking back and, oh, I, I see what the, it's a postcard. Mm-hmm. It's a postcard for right. what it should have been, what it could have been, what I want it to have been. And then all of a sudden the movie's just there for you. Yeah. You're like, oh, I see it now. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of postcards, before we get into this scene proper, mm. just postcard heavy, mm-hmm. I had one more general vice question for you. This is, as we've said, it's a very unique adaptation. It's a very unique way of telling the novel and a very different way of telling the story than, than the novel goes about it. And you are, you, you've never done a straight like adaptation. You have, I think, really looked at Hammett, mm-hmm. for instance, with, with Brick. There's a whole history of kind of road and con man movies that... Mm-hmm. I think, flowed into Brothers Bloom. Mm-hmm. But you take something like Star Wars The Last Jedi, you are, you're kind of adapting the characters mm-hmm. to your story and your vision for them. Uh, and, oh, really quick, I just should take a quick moment just because uh, people might not know this, uh, and you're probably going to be too polite to say anything. You'll probably go, oh, sure. <laughs> I you'll, doubt that. You'll, you'll, probably, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll do the director. Interesting. interesting. Uh, I'm just going to say it. In case there's any confusion, Star Wars: The Last Jedi is the best Star Wars film. Oh yes, it's the this pop cultural juggernaut that defines Western pop. It, it it's the best one. Interesting. It's the best. Interesting. It's very kind of you. It just needed to be said. <laughs> but speaking of which, you are someone who had to deal with the I think probably very intense, terrifying pressure of. Here's this universe, and here's this mm. world, and here's this way of telling the story. 
And I'm going to continue it in a way that honors the telling of the other parts of the story. Mm -hmm. But I have to do it the way that it makes sense to me. Right. And I have to do it in a way that makes sense to the way I make films and the way these characters make sense to me. Right. And I'm curious then how you how you look at PTA's way of taking this very strange story mm-hmm. and making it what he did. The, did you read the book before having seen the film and then Not going right. to the film going, what the hell was this? I read the book oh. when it came out, but that was that was a little bit right before the movie came out, I think. Or how much the time was it? The book was like 09, yeah. and then the movie was... 14, 2014. Yeah, so I had read the book a while ago. Not, but when I saw it, it's not like I revisited the book first. And I, my, I mean, I'm obviously I'm a very big pension fan. And the book, I, I had the same reaction to the book as you. I enjoyed it, but it didn't really like you know hit me in between the eyes or something. And yeah. I felt and it's weird, like the connections between it and Vineland, which did floor me when I read it. Which you is know? like. It's almost like two. It's the two halves, two halves of the yang. same story, two sides of the same coin. Really does. Yeah. One's more of like a family novel, yeah. and much, much larger and, and yeah. broader in scope. Yeah. And then you have the straight up. No, we're just going to make a, sh- a subgenre, or I'm going to write a subgenre book, not we. The, I think uh, maybe because Vineland was such a a thing for me. Um, it. I think maybe that's why when I read Inherent Vice, it kind of did get kind of filed as like a sub you know, yeah. a sub thing, which is totally unfair. And, um, <laughs> and actually I re I, uh, cause I had read it back then. I, I don't know if you've heard the audiobook of it. No, uh-uh. it's really well read. It's really good. I forget the actor's name. that did it, but it's really good. So I actually listened to that in preparation for this. Like I'm listening to a lot of audiobooks lately. That's so, incredible. Yeah. It was really, cool. I feel really guilty. I mean, I'm glad you enjoyed it, but I feel guilty that you put that little level You should of time. feel guilty. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I barely woke <laughs> up before it was time to do this. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, just as someone who, yeah. who's dealt with the pressure of adapting a story well, and, and, and well, your pressure might've been a little different. I don't right. know that there was quite the fandom for Thomas Pynchon's I inherent that, vice novel that there very, was for Star Wars. Very specific, small, <laughs> but not, but more passionate Pynchon fan base probably. <laughs> but also, I mean, it, it's, uh, I mean, I, I, I think part of talking before about like finding my way into loving the movie, Mm -hmm. part of that was letting go of its connection to pension in Mm -hmm. a weird way for me. It wasn't, part of it was saying, was taking it as, okay, the movie. And I still like, even just having read, you know, like after I finished in my like reread, you ever feel guilty saying read after you listen to the audiobook or something? You feel like- I I feel like I'm a liar. I feel like I'm a liar. I feel like a liar and a cheat when I say that I've- you know, I, I recently was listening to the Jeremy Irons reading of yeah. Lolita, which is amazing. I hear it's great. Yeah. It is because he gives yeah. an yeah. actual performance and not, yeah. you know, it's not the, the not great yeah. Adrian Lin film. Yeah, yeah, he was yeah, in, yeah. But he actually gives a performance yeah. and it's breathtaking. But then, you know, not the, if there was like a letter, but I don't use like <laughs> books, but like, you know, I'm not on Goodreads, but... I feel really guilty if someone goes, what's the last thing you read? Oh, Lolita. Well, after after I re-listened to uh, Inherent Vice, uh, I watched, I sat down and watched the movie and that was my least favorite viewing of the movie I've had in a while because I was constantly comparing it to Uh. the book. And not that the movie suffered by comparison to the book. It didn't, but 
you're just you you've had this experience of the words that Pynchon conjures for you. You've mm-hmm. directed versions of that, in your, and then then it's it's just, there's more math that going on in your head when you're watching it. Then because you're translating each of the scenes into oh, it's interesting. Even if you like it, it's like oh, it's interesting. He chose to do this. Oh, it's interesting. He's approaching it like this. Oh, that's interesting. It's missing this or it's adding this. It, or he kept that line of yeah. all the lines. That's the line you keep. And so it. I mean, and I. The reason I've never adapted or been interested in adapting is because if I love a book, the furthest thing from my mind is turning it into a movie. I've said, I've just, I, it, to me, it's it's like loving a pair of shoes and saying, oh, I'm going to knit a great sweater out of these <laughs> shoes. They're so completely different. And especially somebody like Pynchon, who is so, uh, I, he's, he's so specific in the way that he, uh, he uses words and uses language. It's just, it's a world of words. You know yeah. what I mean? It just, it doesn't translate to, I think maybe a graphic novel could come closer to, or a comic book could come closer to translating Pynchon than, uh, than a movie. But especially, that's why it's so interesting to me, especially a filmmaker like PTA who is so visual and so poetic in terms of his approach. It's, it's the schism between what those, what they do, what Pynchon does and what PT is is so vast. And that's why it makes the movies, but that, that's in a way perfect because that means the movie just has to completely let go and has to be its own thing. It doesn't have any other choice, you know? It's, it's, it's fascinating that you say you, you can imagine a a great comic book version of the novel, like a more novel accurate just version gener- of the story. Just in general in terms of pension. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about that is PTA intentionally, the run, one of the reasons that the films, the shots themselves, like mm. they almost look like by they composed for like a four by three TV or something mm. because everything is so compressed yeah. and it, it's always just these two shots or over the shoulder shots. So there's none of these like very like long, wild ass camera takes or yeah. huge vistas. Yeah. And apparently it's because he wanted the film to look like a comic book where all all the information is just packed into the background and you, everything is so densely uh, compressed and you have just focus at the center yeah. panel yeah. Uh, of what you're looking at. That's interesting. Which is just some random nerd errata for you to, to carry like on with it. you for the rest of your day. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Ryan and I are going to take a break. We're going to watch this scene and then we're going to be right back to talk about it. You don't remember the Ouija board, do you, Doc? It had been one of those prolonged times of no dope. You think he knows who we can score? Ask. Just do it by yourself like that. Nobody had any. Everybody was desperate and suffering lapses of judgment. Four, two, nine, three. It's a phone number. One, two, five, one. We've got whatever you need. And remember, the sooner you get over here, the more they'll be left for you. So come on down to 4723 Sunset Boulevard. Okay, Better okay, hurry. Okay, I'm sorry. Who, who is it that I talked to? Uh, talk to? She hung up. Let's go. She's screaming at you. Stay away. I'm a police trap. Uh, There's a problem with Ouija boards.
sure did its work. They didn't score any dope that day, but somehow, suddenly, it didn't matter. It was weird that in the limited space of a postcard, Shasta should have chosen to remember that one day in the rain. It had stuck with Doc, too, even though it was late in their time together, when she was already halfway out the door. This is such a show. This is perfect. Journey <laughs> through the past. This is the second time Ryan's made me cry today. <laughs> and how appropriate is it that because we are recording this when the world is ending, that we got bumped yeah. from my normal studio and we are now recording this in the same building right next to the very same room, which we just toured, where... Neil Young recorded his very first album in 1969. It's crazy. It's wild, no? It's crazy. It's great. What year was uh, Journey Through the Past? The movie was like 74 or something. The right? movie was 74. Yeah. The song, he even, he used to introduce it live in the early 70s as this is a song without a home. Song without a home. Well, yeah, that's the, the interesting it, thing is like. Because the, he didn't have it on a proper record. It just bounced around. But well, I think it came yeah. out, I think he wrote it, the first the first appearance on a live record, I think, is 73, 74. Yeah, okay, okay. Is that uh, Time Fades Away? Time Fades Away, the live record. Which is a, a vastly superior performance and recording of it than the studio track, I think. I was a little bit... That's the one thing I'm a little bummed about with this, is that they mm. used the studio track. I understand why mm. they did, because I think he was influenced by um, by that movie, and I think pulling from it makes a lot of sense. But I yeah. find the live version on... Time fades away so heartbreaking and intimate and beautiful. There's uh, a fragility to it all. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm very sweet on the version that's in the film. Yeah. But I, I get you. There is a... There's something that feels like there's it's he's a, it's gonna break yeah. if you if you if you turn it up a little too loud yeah if, if you don't listen to it on just the right set of speakers it's gonna break well it's also I mean sometimes you put a track under a movie and you realize it needs maybe you know maybe to back up the scene it needed a little bit more. Backbone beneath or you just don't want the crowd noise in the yeah, background. Yeah, that's true. That's but I also true. feel like the I I feel like the the live version is almost too sad. Yeah, maybe. There's, yeah. Whereas I feel like in this scene, that's there's definitely the the melancholy. Yeah. That surprised I think everyone the first time they saw this film. I don't yeah. think anyone expected this movie. He's as goddamn sad. Well, as and I remember like because you always get like false rumors uh, before a PTA movie oh, yeah. comes out. Just like I remember, this is Big Lebowski. It's long goodbye. Yeah. Oh my God. It's like airplane. He's oh, it's goofy. It. It's, it's, it, man. It, this is a Zucker Brothers movie. It, that's man. yeah. Just the same way somebody told me like before I watched Phantom Thread. Like they're like, oh, I remember someone was writing online. This is like a you know, it's nine and a half weeks. This is like a. <laughs> <laughs> and, I was like, and I watched it, and I kept waiting for when's the kinky shit coming. I was bracing myself. <laughs> well, like, just waiting for the moment that Mickey Rourke kicks the yeah, door exactly. down with some ice cubes and a knife or something like that. Well, I mean, it's a thirsty movie, but it's a very, it's a very chilly thirst in that film. Yeah, it's a very so, un un unspoken thirst, let's say. But wow, his nine and a half weeks. I don't know what somebody wrote it online, but I had a buddy who was working on it, and I like said that to him, and he just he didn't say anything. He just like cocked an eyebrow at me. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I I I love the idea. I I can imagine someone 
I would love to see his react, Paul's reaction. I know, he would love oh, it. Probably. Oh, well, yeah, man, I guess. You know, smacking the gum. Yeah, man, uh, you know, we try to make it sexy, uh, make a good movie. That's a pretty it's good. A, it's not a, bad, not a bad one. I'll take it, sure. That's a damn good impression. Holy <laughs> shit, wow. wow. I've watched way too I many PTA interviews. Are you going to have him on, by the way? Are you going to have him on. around for, yeah? Working on it. Working on it, all right. We're working on it. Yeah. Um, I'm not supposed to say anything on here. All right. Um, well, I guess I just did. Um, so this scene, <laughs> this scene. Let's start with Joanna Newsom. Yeah, why I, not? That was the other reason I wanted to talk about the scene was just to have a chance to talk about Joanna Newsom a little bit. Which will take a brief diversion. I'm gonna, yeah, this is an it's an inherent vice podcast. So yeah. There's going to be lots of side streets. We're going to yeah, go down. yeah. Just want to say, a yeah. this is the most demanded scene. Yeah, that any every like really? well actually second second second. The most in-demand scene Pancakes? everyone wanted. No. Eating the pot? Bananas. Bananas. The, oh, no the, shit. The wantonly filleting of a banana. Do you tie that into the scene in the police station before it or just the wantingly eating the banana in the just, car? Just, it was just that sure. hard All minute. Right. All right. And we had, and you know, we had yeah. chocolate-covered frozen bananas during the episode. Oh, nice. Nice. Who did it? Uh, Mariah Gates. Okay. Uh, TCM, Filmstruck. Yeah, sure. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. Right. And it, they were terrible. It's a horrible, horrible <laughs> snack. Horrible snack. I regret it. They're and so I, it, good. Oh no! No, I love. It. I have great and memories I, and of chocolate. And, and I hated the. I hated that we did the bit because I was stuck yeah. doing it the whole episode, and it was just terrible. It was what was? Terrible. What's the backstory in the book that he has like a whole ba- a backlog of frozen bananas he, because like. They, he, oh, because he was going to dry them and grind the banana peels mm-hmm. to make fake dope, yep, right? Yep. And it's like, and then but it's also got the connection to uh, uh, Gravity's Rainbow, to the opening scene where I don't know if you remember the banana feast that starts. There is. You're right. Gravity's uh, Rainbow. What's his name? Makes yeah. the uh, yeah. And yeah. Is it is it uh, Roger Mexico? Yep. Yep. He. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the, the 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 paragraphs and paragraphs describing the banana brunch. So this anyway. is the kind of hard hitting content you get when you tune into Incremental. Tune in yeah. the Grand Radio Show. But no, th- th- I was going to say that this. Well, that was a wild digression. This is the second most. Right. Every, everyone's like, "Can I get? Can I Feel get the privileged. sad running in the rain scene? Feel can privileged. I have that scene?" Yeah. Uh, and but I, what was funny to me is when we were first talking about what scene you were going to do, <coughs> you didn't say. Oh, I need the scene where they're in love in the rain. Yeah. I got to have, you know, with Danielia. You're, you were like, I need the Joanna Newsom scene with the Ouija board. Yeah. I need Joanna Newsom. I've been thinking about yeah. her a lot. And yeah. Like, yeah. And I'm, I, what what brought you? <coughs> I'm coughing because I swallowed water wrong, by the way. I don't want everyone to panic I, and flee. I don't know if any, <laughs> no one can see us right now, but like all these guys in hazmat suits just ran everyone in. Everyone just These red lights came the on. Floor. Uh, and we're going to be like getting sprayed with like those 1950s prison movie delousing hoses yeah. when we get out of here. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks. You're welcome. Fun, fun Saturday we're going to yeah. have today. <laughs> uh, but no, you were like, I really want to talk about uh, Joanna. Yeah. Yeah. Who I, I mean, I, I don't want to, yeah, I, I, uh, who I, I, it's not like I know her, but I just am such a big fan of her music. I mean, it's it. So the Milk Eyed Mender was like the, the I think it's her first first album, and that's when I got it's into the first it first. One, right? Yeah, the next yeah. one is uh, and the next one is I, I never know how to pronounce it. Is it Yeast? Yeast? Easy? 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 I know that's the one I'm supposed to love the most. Oh, it's great! It's I, a fantastic. I, I, I'll album. always oh, be. It's a, so I'm, good. I'm it's be dense. A, and no, I love it. Sure, yeah, but I know it's the one I'm supposed to love the most, and I'm, yeah. I'm a divers guy. Oh, divers is beautiful, but but Ease Wise Ease has uh, those beautiful. Oh, it's so dense that album. It's got those Van Dyke. 
parks. It's got his it's arrangements, gorgeous. which is amazing. I, I think All one the of the strings. reasons why, I mean, I, I really enjoy it, but the reason why I don't listen to it more is yeah. that's one of those records I have to stop. You can't just I have casually to sit, listen to it. I have it. to yeah. look at the turntable and it's do nothing else but just ingest. And you're going to need a nap after you listen to yes. it. So it's really, yes. It's, I, so I've probably done more writing to Joanna Newsom's music than maybe any how other can you concentrate on artist. Your I, don't, I don't know, man. Like There's I, something about, you know, I can write really well in, in crowded public spaces mm-hmm. because sort of it, it gives me something the complexity of of it gives me something to but I also I just I find her really the lyrics and the combination of everything you know there's something that's just really inspiring about her music for me and I just uh yeah I think she's incredible and she's is she married to Andy Samberg she is who is also, partners. Who's also a genius who's also fucking incredible so it's that's like an incredible power couple right there they're great but her music oh my god yeah, I, I uh, and it's funny, like I, I uh, <clears throat> it, like have one on me, like has a couple tracks on it also that yeah. I've been like listening to a lot recently. And it's just, it feels like a well, her music just has it. It's it, a world. It's a whole world and it's it's this very deep well that yeah, I can keep coming back to. It's also incredibly polarizing music. Like I find yeah. that, yeah, I play it for friends and they're either going to love it or they're going to not even well, she's like She's like Inherent Vice. It's yeah. you're either going to find your way or it's like, no, no. It makes sense. Yeah. No, sir. Yeah. No, ma'am. But I've been in from the beginning, man. And I just – and so – just the fact that she plays kind of this otherworldly presence in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think is I haven't seen her act in any other stuff. I think she's really good in it. And yeah. yeah. This is why like PTA is PTA yeah. and the rest of humanity is the rest of humanity <laughs> is he's the guy's like, let's get Joanna Newsome and make her so a narrator cool, that man. doesn't exist it. in the book. Just, yeah. I, I want to hear whole chunks of Pinchonese. Yeah. That'd be a good way. Just let's hear her, I mean, let's hear her voice device. translate I mean, that. You're talking about just like translate, just uh, adaptation wise. It's a really smart device because there is just a lot of, uh, you know, narrations that like, you know, mm. uh, narration stuff that is stuff you need to hear that wouldn't make sense to jam into dialogue. So he needed to figure out some way to kind of have a narrator. Mm. And, um, I mean that character exists in the book. It's just she does she doesn't narrate. The, no, she's just the yeah. hippie gal. Yeah, hangs out with Doc. Yeah. She used to be yeah. a secretary. Yeah. But what I love it's also a tribute to Pinchon's work and that he said a PTA said in interviews. He's like, how do I cut out all of that great? I know those linguistic, fantastic, yeah, and curly cues so that good, he creates. Yeah. Like, how do you, yeah. how do you make a Pinchon book but then leave out the Pinchon? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can have. By the, the way, have you figured out whether Pinchon pops up in the movie anywhere? Well, I have thoughts. I know we're going to do, do digression number do. 37 Let's do it. right now. All right. Um, since we're waiting for the DeLousing crew anyway, now that Ryan <laughs> coughed, we're in a lot of trouble now. Yeah. Uh, there's a guy who's clearly dressed up to look like Pynchon of this era. And what's him? In the Topanga Canyon house sequence, okay. the house party. That makes a lot of sense. It's a dense scene. And it's and it's very obvious that we're we're doing we're having a wink here. Yeah. Uh, in that scene, it's it's if you it, you see him walking around in the the periphery when Doc is walking around and looking at mm-hmm. everybody, and he's noticing the bikers with the the swastikas mm-hmm. and everything. But in the the subsequent beat, when Owen Wilson and Joaquin are sitting at the table and they're talking Does about he the, by in the windows, there's the, there? there's a guy who I've literally looked, stops and just turns and looks at the camera. I've looked, I've looked at them though. It's not. I mean, that's, he looks like if they're. Yeah. Man, I feel gross admitting that I looked at this. Um, 
in the Oh, did you? No, don't say it. What? I know what you're about to say. There, there you was, look at the fucking picture that there that was guy a news, took. No! There, there was a national news organization. Wash well, you, your you eyeballs. Look too, you look too, because you know what I'm talking about. I know. Uh, we, all, we, all, we all looked. We all looked there, there, there was a really gross and exploitative shot of Pynchon walking in public with a family member, and he had a, a style of facial hair and a style of a quaff. Mm-hmm. That uh, I don't know why I'm hinting at what it is because you can watch the movie and see. But the, this character in the film was done up to have yeah. that look, yeah. and I think that that's meant to be like a joking, mm-hmm. ha 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 he he. But uh, Brolin himself has let it slip that um, Pynchon was on the set, mm-hmm. and you ask PTA, he's like, ah, you know, I don't know this guy's yeah. been his whole life, you know, I don't want to say nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he started, yeah, he just, but uh, I. If I have to guess, um, I think he is in the barbecue. There's a guy Mm -hmm. in the barbecue sequence at the Wolfman house that just— Dressed up like a cop? Well, there's a pool sequence. There's all these cops that are all, like, bizarrely in shape. Like, they're they're all L.A. extras. They're all L.A. extras. And so they have that look. And then there's just this this really old cop Mm -hmm. walking around that doesn't make— He's not even looking directly at the camera. That would be funny to cast him as a cop. That'd be That's why it yeah. seems like the kind yeah. of thing that would make him. And <laughs> Bro, that was a day that Brolin was on set because that's the day he pulls up oh, and he, he shows beats up, up Keen. Yeah. And he just kept saying, uh, when, if you look at the Brolin quote, he says something to the effect of, there was a lot of people on set that day. Yeah. And he just kind of hung out in the background and no one but me and Paul knew that that's who it was. Uh, that's interesting. And so my guess is it's, it's, it's the guy in that scene. Yeah. But if you do see him, and then you recognize someone in New York that looks like that. Just leave the man alone. Leave him be. Leave him be. Leave him be. Okay. For God's sake. He's doing his. He gave us the Simpsons. What more do you want? <laughs> all right. Uh, what were we talking? We were about? talking about Joanna Newsom. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, is is that why there's a harp in the Brothers Bloom? Yeah, 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 yeah. And we actually Nathan and I talked about my cousin Nathan who did the music for that. Um, at the time, we had been like, could we get Joanna Newsom to play this stuff? Could we get and we. We, to play like, Rachel Vice's character, or no, just no, to, no, do the to play the harp, to oh, play okay. the, to do because there was a lot of harp music, and mm. in the, and we, I think, probably rightly decided not to bother poor Joanna News. Can we come borrow your art for two minutes? <laughs> well, no, to have her play this stuff, yeah. and it's like she's got better stuff to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last Joanna Newsom question of two. Yeah, she's either this phantasmic Jiminy Cricket figment yeah. of Doc's imagination, or she's a real person. Somewhere in the future, mm-hmm. telling us that all of this happened. Right. Is she either of those things to you, or do you not care? I think she's both. Yeah. I maybe oh, you think she's mean, both. Maybe that means I don't care. I think she's both a real person in it, and she also kind of steps over and transcends into omniscient narrator. And I mm-hmm. think that's part of the slur of of Doc's adult hippie brain. I think is that's uh, a really good line. I'm going to steal that. There you go. Yeah. It. it I think that. It makes perfect sense to me that she is a real person and she also um, kind of slurs over into this, you know, uh, those, omni- omniscient mode. Those beats where she just... Yeah, she's, pops she's in gone. and pops out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I love that. I don't know, but I don't question that stuff. I don't feel like, wait, what are the rules of this? <laughs> I, I really love just that it, it flows with it, you know, so... 
So you're you're fine you're fine without there being established rules, even in like a genre picture that you're watching. Yeah, you're cool with absolutely. It. Rules Busting are up. rules kill everything, man. Rules are the worst. Well, because you said you had that trouble with the plot versus the poetry <clears> in terms <throat> yeah. of that kind of that Hammett attitude. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Whereas yeah. I, I think that what's there's there's also those there's those two. Types I mean, I almost wish the movie made less sense. You know, I, <laughs> I almost do because that that would lean more towards what the other thing where the plot the other is thing so that really pulled me into it. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I think maybe actually you might have struck on to one thing that does make this difficult is there's those mm. two types of detective movies. There's the detect- detective movie where the plot is the thing. Right. And then there's the other one on the furthest end of the spectrum across from that, which is, oh, forget it, forget it. We're just, it's just to get us in the room. Right. And I think sometimes actually this straddles both a little bit. We're like, no, we we, we do need to know a little bit of this plot to mm-hmm. get from A to B to C to Z. <clears throat> But the rest of it, who gives a shit? Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's why it's a little harder for some people to grab onto is because it's not one or the other. I mean, I don't know how much other well, it's how, funny, how much normal people actually care about which I mean, version of a detective movie they're getting. It's the f- weird thing is though, it's like it's almost like um, I don't know what the right analogy for this is. It's it's almost like the the skeletal remains of this labyrinth plot are completely intact in the movie. Even if the movie, even if to the movie, they are just dead bones, you know, they are still all there. And yeah. it, it, like you said at the beginning, it all connects and it's all there, which is fascinating to me. It's, it's, uh, it really is like, because the movie is about like the, you know, crazy silks draped over these bones. I'm taking this analogy way the fuck <laughs> out. This is horrible. But it's, it's, the, the movie is so not about, the plot and yet the plot is completely intact throughout the course of the film which is it creates this fascinating contrast it's really interesting yeah you should be hosting this hey step us watch your ass you watch your ass brother (laughs) (laughs) jesus this took a a real turn i was sitting here thinking what a nice guy this is just coming and talking to me about this movie never get comfortable man You ever play with a Ouija board? <laughs> uh, no. You know what? So I, You don't mess with that stuff? I don't fuck with that shit. I grew up religious. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my parents were like, uh, they were like Protestants. They were mm-hmm. like, they were like hardcore, like religious, religious. But they're religious enough to where, uh, like, the, I remember they gave me a D&D set because they thought it was like a cool thing. And I didn't really know what to do with it. They gave you a D&D they, set? And then took it away when it's the satanic say. panic happened. Oh, yeah, Because okay. when they uh, the stuff started happening, they actually took my D&D, D&D set away. Um, and you still so, mad about that? No. This is going to turn into therapy. Look, I do feel like uh, I, I do have this, like, inclination to get into D&D as an adult, even though I've never played it. I have friends who do games, and I'm always like, oh, maybe I'll come by. I tried once. I tried. Yeah? I didn't I didn't know what I was I, – you know, you would get your picture taken. You don't know what to do with your hands. Always. That's how I felt when I was playing uh, the game. I was like, really? yeah. so I just tell you what my character is going to uh, do? Yeah. Like, I'm just going to tell you. That's yeah. cool. I mean, I like – like storytelling. <laughs> what are we doing here? Are, what, what, are, are we, we recording this? Is what, this going to be a podcasted? <laughs> What's the purpose of this? I have no purpose. <laughs> exactly. If it's not documented like, on the internet. <laughs> you know what yeah, I love? Yeah. I love that we, uh, the term Ouija is owned by the Hasbro Corporation. Is it? That feels very golden fanged. <laughs> it's, it's another random bit of a rat. It has nothing yeah. to do with anything, but we're talking about Ouija boards. Have that just had, seems so golden fanged to me that that's actually owned by the Hasbro Corporation. You have you had like experiences? We should have brought a Ouija board is what we should. 
Oh, you God. Know you know, I brought the goddamn frozen bananas. Oh, Why didn't I bring sake. a Ouija board? Have you had any weird juju. experiences with them? Yeah. Um, no. And I, thank you know, for being on my podcast, by the way. I appreciate <laughs> you being here and making the time. It happened Saturday. that quickly, everyone. It <laughs> happened like, that just quickly. Like that. All these suits just came into the room. <laughs> my producer just started coughing in the background. She's sick now. It's like my nightmare. <laughs> Go he on. shows up, infects me with uh, the coronavirus, and he just takes my goddamn show. It happened that quickly. Jesus, it's got so, dark quick. Uh, you know, no. No, you haven't? <laughs> I've never played with a Ouija board. Boy, this is taking all sorts of turns. No, I, and not because I thought it was weird or anything. Yeah. Um, maybe I'm like an asshole. But like anytime like, someone's like, you want to get the Ouija board? I'm like, no, it seems stupid. Like, yeah, what, what, it's you're, you're, stupid. We're gonna move our hands together, like <laughs> unless it's like maybe if you were a girl, I was trying to impress. And it's like we're in high school, sure. But so we what, were at what, the what opposite opposite poles of not engaging with the Ouija. You were like, ah, it's stupid shit, and I was like, I will not access the devil <laughs> Satan because <laughs> I was so done with Satan. Like it was so passe to me. Like yeah. in high, ah, oh, come on, <laughs> Satan Schmaten, the Dark Prince. Uh, no, I, I just I just seem silly yeah. to me. Yeah, um, it's kind of silly. And, you know, maybe I just don't like board games. I don't know. Well, here's a question in terms of, like, fantasy versus reality. How do you place, like, what happens what in the book? Because it, it is, like, the one kind of, like— That's um, the weird moment. The one weird moment in the, in the entire thing. Yeah. That's the, that is the moment where the weird—for for, for all of his, you know, silliness and his love of dropping from the most lyrical— chains of English language you can imagine to just mm. dick and fart jokes. Mm. There's always a u- a universe, or as he writes in the book, what you would call an atmosphere. He has, a, he has an engineer's brain at the yeah. end of the day, yeah. And it's a world where, however M.C. Escher or Rube Goldberg it might be, it all connects. It sure. all There's a logic. There's an underpinning yeah. to it. Yeah. There's a system of rules. Yeah. And this is like the one moment in the book where cold as this scene is, as we've said in the book, where it's almost like it just gets a little weird and human and messy Mm -hmm. because there is no explanation for that. Either later on in the scene, it's just that's where they – that's there's a beam that Mm -hmm. sends them from that board Mm -hmm. to that corner, which just so happens to be the the, the corporate headquarters of the thing that Doc spends the whole book discovering Mm – is ruining the lives of everyone in America right. and Indochina right. with its heroin trade. So do I have – God, that is – it's weird to say I wrestle with it like this is some personal trauma that I'm dealing with. But since I think about this movie so goddamn much, you know, it is something I think about a lot where is this – was this like his weird – do- Doper's ESP detective huntery mm-hmm. bringing to him to a place? Is the memory even entirely accurate mm. in that – the address that's in that's in his flashback is not really the address, but it's like his dopers like detective hunch is like working in where he needs to I go next. I don't think there's any world where that makes sense though, because well, right? Because well, who sh- well, I guess this is your show. I guess I mean you get to say what makes sense. No, I know, right? No, uh, no, but I mean, no, no. I get I, it's the, the because thing I, is like it, the do- dopers, uh, you know, dopers ESP at the end. It makes sense that he has an instinctual yeah. hunch to look into the trunk. But and this is what not, happens. There's nothing that would actually because the notion that even if he's like making up that they called and got a yeah. message, he would have to be hallucinating that, and they still end up on that exact yeah. corner, which is why I'm. Else. I had to come up with something, so I know you did. I'm not gonna let you get away. Not on my show, brother. Play by the rules. 
<laughs> but that's what happens when you try to to fray the wire and see where everything yeah. connects. It's like you yeah. go, well, uh, you know, uh, maybe it's 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 mm. it's him now projecting the address into his memory, so it can at least. It's so also he can just really beautiful that like the entire plot, like hinge in the book, even hinges on this magical moment. You know? dope it's ESP. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how sad it is, though, and it's so much more. It's not even sad. It's just cold and ugly in the book. But how sad it is. In this scene that, you know, I mentioned this in a prior episode, uh, Irreversible is not a, a film that I can rewatch a whole lot. Yeah. It's, 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 it's not fun. Yeah. But there's a line from that movie that I think about all the time, the title card, you know, time destroys everything. Mm-hmm. And I think about that a lot in terms of this scene. I think about that a lot in terms of this film, but especially the scene in which mm-hmm. that is such a happy moment for Doc and Shasta. Even if she is halfway out the door, they are mm-hmm. so happy, but he can't remember it happily mm. because he now knows how that story ends. Right, right, right. And on top of that, the the horror that the thing that contained so much happiness for him mm. also contained the seeds of what was going to be this ruinous, right. destructive force. And I do think that's something that's so much more mm-hmm. in the book than the film, which is that idea of realizing it's almost... You can't you can't call like the Manson murders mm-hmm. the death knell of the '60s. The stuff that caused the death knell of the '60s began so much earlier than you thought was there, mm. and the antecedents were so much, or the precedents were so much further back that you know that building was being built before you even realized there was a company right. called the Fang. Right. And to see that cradled in this memory of this woman he loves is it's it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, to yeah, me. the contrast of that. Yeah. And it also makes me feel very freaked out when yeah. I, we look at our current. Yeah. state of affairs because you're like oh well you know four years ago it just went to shit yeah and then you're like well the foundation the foundation is that there. is that when things started being bad <laughs> or is that just when your privileged ass noticed that things laid. might be getting uh, a little scary out there i was trying to think i've I, I, the thing is i mean impension like has and by the way am i because i have some friends who i've heard they say thomas pinchon I if well, <laughs> when you listen to this episode, I do it. I do one or the other every other episode because I have no really? idea. Okay. Sometimes I'm pinch on. Pinch sometimes on. I'm pinching. Pinching my Missouri. Yeah, slur I get, comes I, in. I, I get that, that Colorado. Yeah, you know, pinching, pinch on. All I do know is he's not going to actually come out. He's and correct not going to correct us. So who cares? great if he did, by the way. So I'll just keep saying it wrong <laughs> in hopes of provoking him. <laughs> let's. <laughs> Fuck, pro- I can't do. I'm calling this guy. One of the twentieth, twenty-first century's great artists by mildly mispronouncing his name, and maybe he'll come on your new podcast. Uh, maybe we'll see. Uh, so uh, what was I saying? So oh, so I was trying to think if. Um, because I, you know, I the way that I when and, and I don't do this and I don't try and get anyone to read Gravity's Rainbow anymore. I used to like try and like close friends once in a while. I would like say, okay, all right, I'm you gonna feel try like kind and of a like. Dick, though, when you push it, always, you? always. But that's why it would always, always just selected people. But when, if I would, I would say, this book is going to make you literally feel in somewhere in the course of it every emotion. That, Yes. A, a human is capable yep. of feeling. Yep. And the thing is though, like the one element, because it's at the heart of this scene in the movie, that kind of romantic, that, that deeply just giving yourself over to pure unadulterated romance of this moment. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when they're curled up in the, when they're kissing in the doorway and her leg curls up and just like that kind of, and 
I that's the one note that I don't know that I have ever. You know, I, I feel like with pension there are things that are emotional. Mm-hmm. There are absolutely emotional connections between people. There are moments of kind of romance, although they're usually like doomed moments of yep. romance. You know, there's always some darker subtext underneath it. That's one thing that I feel like is kind of baked into the heart of what. Uh, PTA does that I don't know if that note exists in Pynchon's music you know it's an interesting thing I, I, don't, I don't think it does yeah. and even in something as oh god here we go with the, it's something as symphonic yeah. as as Gravity's Rainbow oh uh, Christ yeah I'm, I'm pulling the show back <laughs> I'm bringing it back uh-huh. uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's kind of the one note that's as you, as you said that, that level of unabashed yeah, sweetness, that willingness to be so open and yeah. just lovey dovey. Yeah, like, yeah. God damn it, I, he loves this girl. He's yeah. he's gonna love her. He's just gonna smooch the seat. like he yeah. like he's almost like a puppy dog. He just smooches yeah. the side of her face until she like pushes him off, right, not right, out of right. annoyance, but just like it's that level of sweetness. Yeah, I think it's something that is totally unique mm-hmm. to PTA's version. Yeah, version of the story. That said, yeah, as we we slowly wind this thing down, mm-hmm. I have a question about. Again, your interpretation. We've already talked about, you know, how you do you view Sorlige as a real person or as Jiminy Cricket. I was, as one does, re-watching another film recently, Rick, and I was noticing a lot of similarities. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of interesting how both stories are about uh a detective character who's pursuing a woman who maybe doesn't want to be saved, at least not by him, right. who's getting kind of enmeshed. Uh, in some heroin deals gone wrong. That's true. And you he know, has like a false know, notion in his head. Of might owe you was. a cut, man. I think he does, man. He well, might have to come out of hiding. He's going to have to call in if he wants to. <laughs> the lines are open. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, uh, otherwise, Ryan's going to get on Twitter and announce that PTA or that uh, Pynchon and PTA ripped him off. Rick did it first. Let's go on a rant. Yeah. Um, yeah. That script was around for a while, even before the movie. People, he might have passed it. He could have seen it. But yeah, both are similar in that way, in that, you know, woman lost in the heroin trade mm-hmm. and. Uh, or part of a, a cog in the heroin trade. So, to be fair, that's that's an that's in, not, enduring that, trope whoa, in detective dr- fiction dr- going dr- way back. What are you talking about? <laughs> Seriously? No, that's, that, that wasn't my point. My point yeah. was, though, I was... And maybe because I've been thinking about it so much for this film, re-watching it this, this last time through, how kind of morally complicated... And even culpable in some ways, Brendan is. Oh yeah, that was and, the whole point. Yeah. You know, yeah. it wasn't that I didn't see it when I first saw it. It's just, especially with a film that's kind of complicated like that, you almost have to pick the thread that you follow anytime right. you rewatch it. And right. this one, that was just that was the note that really hummed in my head. It's like, wow, Brendan, he's you know he's he's got a lot of backbone, but I don't know if I'd want to be his pal. Yeah, he's uh, yeah, he's and especially with the way he. Treats Emily. Is yeah. Emily? Did I forget her? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Then yeah. That's, now you're really going to yeah. take my show from me. Get the name. <laughs> but just his perception of her as yeah. someone needing needing to be rescued. And, her, and there's yeah. that great scene, that flashback. She's desperately trying to say, you got to let me go. To like, you're you're him, not yeah. the guy. Yeah. I, w- I love you. I, I almost yeah. wish you were the guy. But you're yeah. not the guy sitting yeah. back here hating everybody. Yeah. And the more that I've been talking about this film and the more that Shasta has been coming up recently – because she disappears for the whole movie until this middle sequence, mm-hmm. is talking to people and really thinking about how she is treated by Doc in the film and that I, I love Doc. I, I love him. I think he's a hero. 
But I do think there's an element to that where the version of Shasta that his mind presents to us, mm-hmm. I don't think is maybe the most accurate Shasta Faye Hepworth in the world. Sure. I think the accurate Shasta Faye Hepworth, the real Shasta Faye Hepworth, is the one that we see in the love scene mm-hmm. later on mm-hmm. and a little bit of in the the opening sequence. Mm-hmm. This idea that he views her as this person who needs to be extricated from the fang, mm-hmm. yet we never see her entirely unhappy mm-hmm. with all of the choices that she's made the way he's made. And I was just curious if you... if if you picked up on that or do you view this as purely a love thing, a love film where he's supposed to rescue her from darkness or is she more of an avatar of that Well, I, I that think he's the, wrestling with? Yeah, no, I think the movie and we've been kind of talking about elements of this throughout the whole thing. I mean, I think one of the things the movie does is, uh, yeah, it, it – it, with both with his relationship with her but even, and this even applies to, you know – the thing we were saying with the Joanna Newsom character, like the, it's it it really does in this beautiful poetic way get to the sadness of even with a relationship that kind of defines you in your head, the notion of how much can you – it sounds even trite to say it, but how much can you know another person? How much can you even know? You know, and that's what he's trying – kind of seeing her through this fog of memory and he gets these snippets of real interactions with her and he's trying to interpret what the fuck those mean. Mm-hmm. And even at the end of the book when they're – you know, the – book end, or at the end of the movie when and the book ends with him alone but he's the mo- alone in the he's car. alone in the car at the, at the end of the book and the movie when they're driving through literally through the fog they're lost in the fog and the notion of you know um and then that wonderful thing of like the beam of light breaking through is it hope is it paranoia of someone following them is it the notion of does he believe it does he not and that little smile that, that right, he gives PTA that, little smile. yeah 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 what does that mean i don't know and then we're out i i mean it to me it, it it's it's less kind of that he's I, I didn't read into it kind of the dynamic that he's um projecting himself as like a white knight coming to, which is more of the Brendan thing. It's more the sickness of sort of setting your moral compass on idea and refusing to bend when new information comes in, just pushing straight forward. This, I didn't quite get that, but what I did get is just the sadness that I think he's very aware of, of he's picking through the fog and trying to figure out, you know, this is, what was this relationship? There's someone I deeply cared about and loved. And it's, it's when something you had is gone and it's, it's, uh, trying to put the pieces together a bit, you know. And I think his his drug-addled brain is kind of a, a great analog for kind of when you're – when you've been shattered by something, by a loss, and you're trying to kind of pick through what was reality and what wasn't, you know. Because yeah, even your process itself is shattered at that Absolutely, point. yeah, 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 exactly. Jesus. It's beautiful. We got, we got heavy here, didn't we? Yeah, we did it, man. Well, I want to thank you for having me on your show today, Brian. <laughs> I'm so happy you could make the time to be here. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you know, it was a busy day, uh, but I took a break from the pandemic to come talk to you today. <laughs> so I figure kind. I owed you. <clears throat> You're so kind. Oh, oh, oh God. <laughs> yeah, we're going to... Oh. We're gonna be like in a, a like oh, a, oh god, we're gonna be like in a, like a locked off zone know. here. Thank God. Well, thanks, thanks Ryan. Thanks for time. coughing because we got the guys in the suits out front. So Perfect. I'll have fun uh, living in the concentration center with you at Kaiser Permanente, <laughs> which, by the way, I thought was very appropriate. The address yeah. that they get sent to. I looked it up. Where does it lead to? Now? It's, is it, uh, it's a hospital well, on nowadays. Sunset, right? yeah. Nowadays, see, this is why you should have been the host because I just, I just ruined, side, right? I ruined our perfect ending by jumping yeah. back to this. But yeah. no, it's the Kaiser Permanente Center on, on Sunset, sunset right? yeah. just east of Vermont. 
That's right. Which where is, I, that's right is, by where I live. Yeah. Is, uh, yeah. Is literally yeah. where it's positioned in the book. Where Pynchon writes, it's, yeah. it's on Sunset, yeah. just east of Vermont. I remember, he gives like, yeah, the yeah, and, and yeah, but yeah, it's something about it when you when you look at it. It's that big looming glass yeah. square, not quite yeah. a thing, but yeah. so, kind of still tooth shaped. Yeah. Uh, it's just this big ugly glass corporate building. Yeah, that's right where Doc and Shasta had their happiest <laughs> moment, that's even funny. though she was one foot out the door. Uh-huh. There you go, man. <laughs> well, again, Ryan. Thank you for having me on your show today. Oh, you're so welcome. Man. I'm going to go back and come finish Knives out, out too. Come back anytime. Let me know when the script is done. <laughs> well, there's, there's this great, there's this great uh, podcaster character in the show. <laughs> really charming, handsome. This is uh, all about inherent vice. What is Yeah, it's, it, it's more like we're going to have all the same actors play different characters. Daniel Craig uh, is going to be really handsome in shape playing this podcaster <laughs> uh, who watches way too many movies and, and, and then talks about him. I, I, I think it's going to be a real, I think it's really going to throw people for a loop. It's really going to surprise it. them. Let's do it. It's I'm really going to surprise them. All right. Ryan, thank you so much for yeah, coming oh, on the show today. It's fun. For the most nerdy endeavor, perhaps, <laughs> of your entire life, even more Which so than really the, saying the few weeks of Dungeons & Dragons that you had. <laughs> this out-nerds that yeah. so, so much. It's an accomplishment. Thanks. Man. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for talking about Inherent Vice and for complimenting my, my PTA impression. <laughs> thank you for stealing my show and my intellectual property You're so welcome. and uh yeah just thank you and thanks everybody for listening and please come back next time where myself and a very 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 special guest are going to stand in the shadow of the golden fang wowie zowie hearing a talk from early march sure feels like a bittersweet memory these days quarantine blues and all but I guess a memory latticed with the bitter and the sweet is about as appropriate as one can get when it comes to a movie like Inherent Vice. And lucky for us, we have a host like Ryan John... Oh, Travis. Right, Travis, to guide us through it. But what comes next? Will we ever untangle the mystery of the Golden Fang? Will I actually be narrating Ryan Johnson's subconscious from here on out? While Travis writes Knives Out 2, Knives Sharper... We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.